You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Clips used in this podcast are from C-SPAN. Because of the circumstances in which I got here, I I, uh, was meeting regularly once a week with one of the finest men I ever knew, then majority leader, Senator Mike Mansfield. When I got in here, between the date I got elected and the date I arrived, my wife and daughter were killed in an automobile accident. And I wasn't crazy about being here. And Senator Mansfield was a great man that he was, took on the role of sort of Dutch uncle for me and would tell me what my responsibility was and why I should stay in the Senate. And then, without my knowing it really at the time, looking back on it, it was crystal clear, uh, would ask me to come and meet with him in his office once a week and uh, talk about what was I was doing. But he acted like I was, you know, sort of he was the principal and I was the young teacher and I was coming to tell him about how my classes were going. But really what it was is just to take my pulse and see how I was doing. Well, he told me that story and he said, let me tell you, every single solitary man and woman with whom you'll serve in the Senate has something very special that their constituency sees in them. And your job is to look for that. I can't imagine anybody saying that today, can you? I can't imagine in this raw political environment we're in, somebody having the insight Mike Mansfield had and telling a novitiate, if you will, a new young senator, that part of my job was to look for that thing in my colleague. A colleague with whom I had bitter disagreement. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and in this episode, we're going to look at the power of building relationships outside of your own political party, or with people with another political philosophy. And absolutely no one has done that better in our United States Congress than our current president-elect, Joe Biden. The idea that um, my daughter, who is a 22-year-old grown woman now, but to this day, in the bedroom, in our home, her bedroom, would have one picture hanging, or actually sitting on her dresser, of all the pictures as a child who, the moment she was born, her father was a senator, and her entire life I've been a senator. She's had the privilege of being able to meet uh, 
senators and presidents and kings and queens. She has one picture. Sitting on her bureau, which startled me when I realized it the other night. She doesn't live at home. She's like all young people on her own. <laughs> There's a picture of she and Strom Thurmond taken when she was nine years old, sitting on her desk. Now again, if you had told me, first of all, if you had told me when I was 20 years old I was ever going to have a child, I would have found it hard to believe, but if you had told me when I was 29 years old, when I did have two children, that one of my children, as I approached the Senate, would roughly 30 years later, have a childhood picture of she or he in Strom Thurmond's office standing next to his desk with his arm around her that was kept on her bureau, I would have said, you've insulted me. Don't do that. I became one of Strom Thurmond's close friends. And as his AA for many years will tell you, one of his protectors. Especially as he got older. Because Mike Mansfield's right. And I never called Mike Mansfield Mike. I'm standing here as a senior senator saying, Mike Mansfield, I never called him Mike. To the day he died, I called him Mr. Leader. And Strom Thurmond, Strom Thurmond had a very, very special piece of him. And so I guess I can, uh, I can kid about Strom because as Strom told me, he said, Joe, uh, if there has to be a Democrat as president, and I hope it won't happen, he said, it might as well be you. And after I dropped out of the race, he came and said, don't worry about it. He said, you got a good 30 years left to try. Uh... Joe Biden and Senator Strom Thurmond were a true political odd couple. In his book, The Power Game, Hedrick Smith accounts, recounts what started this unusual friendship between these two men so totally different. When Strom Thurmond became chairman of the Judiciary Committee in 1981, Smith writes, Biden as the committee's ranking Democrat, went to him privately and offered a deal. No parliamentary tricks, no savage sallies or gambits to embarrass Thurman. In return for a solid chance for both sides to air issues. And Biden also gave Thurman a 90-page draft of a crime bill Biden and his staff had developed, offering to let Thurman be its primary sponsor. Now this was not only a courtesy to a committee chairman, but also an act of pragmatism because Biden knew that no crime bill would pass without Thurman's backing, Smith wrote. Now initially, Thurman was distrustful, but, Smith writes, once Thurman realized that Biden was serious and could be trusted, Thurman began to work with him. From that point on, Strom Thurman has never, never, never once suckered me or done any of the old chicanery stuff, and I don't play games with him, Joe Biden is quoted in Smith's book. For example, Biden stood by Thurman during his fight to strengthen child pornography and obscenity laws, even when the bill had legal questions that resulted in a heated uh, debate on the Senate floor.
I must pray, and that's what we're trying to do here. We are trying to ban obscenity. If you want to protect the children of this country, you've got to take a stand. Talk about it may be unconstitutional. Everything we pass here, somebody alleges a constitutional about it. It's all right to allege it. You've got your own opinion. Other people have their opinions. The judges uh, make the final officers. We feel, the Justice Department feels, that it is constitutional. They went along with this bill. We've gone into it carefully. We've considered every angle of it. And I met with Senator Biden, and he's agreed to this bill. There are some differences there we had, and, and we have yielded, in most cases, to him on this matter. Well, Senator, you uh, Mr. President, I want to say... Well, Senator, you for just a second. I'll be glad, please. Yes. I want to make it clear that we did compromise. I fully... That's correct. ...have concurred. I was answering the Senator's questions about what my remaining concerns were. And they are my remaining concerns, as I expressed to you, but they in no way indicate that I have not committed to this compromise and committed to passage of the bill. Yeah, and I understood you don't support this bill as we... That's, that's exactly right. I, I speak Thank for the bill you. as it is, but I, in response to the much. questions raised, I was expressing what... You're a man of good judgment, and <laughs> you agreed to this comment. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. President, I just want to say this. These people that take little girls and strip them nude and take films of them and take pictures of them, and these people that write filthy, dirty material that you don't want your children to see. Something's got to be done about it. Now, we've put it off long enough. The present laws are not adequate, and therefore we feel we've got to take more stringent action. Now, that's the purpose of this bill. If the Supreme Court finds any provision unconstitutional, I hope they will find the whole bill unconstitutional. But the Justice Department feels that this bill is necessary I feel it's necessary, and I believe this Senate will feel it's necessary. And I hope the Senate will pass this bill and give the benefit to the public, to give the benefit to the children of this country. The Senator from Pennsylvania. Mr. President, I agree with a distinguished Senator from South Carolina completely when he asserts the importance of protecting the children of this country. And nobody in the course of the past four Congresses, in the past four, eight, year, eight years, has worked harder on that subject than has this senator in my capacity as chairman of the Juvenile Justice Subcommittee for some six years. The two men often work together to fight crime and to sell their legislation to, to a couple of presidents, but most notably President Ronald Reagan. Never forget we went down to see President Reagan. He and I had the Thurman Biden crime bill. And he was, we sat in a room with Senator, with President Reagan and with Ed Meese, Jim Baker, and William French Smith, the Attorney General. And Strom started to try to convince the President to sign on to our bill. And he turned to me and said, Joe, explain it to him. So I did my little bit, and it looked like the President was coming along, and I swear the Lord in the Lord's house is true story. And with that, as Ed Meese, Mr. Vice President, thought the President might be convinced, Ed Meese stood up and said, Mr. President, time to go, time to go. And with that, the president very dutifully looked, not dutifully, but very respectfully looked over and said, well, Strom, we were sitting next to him either side. It's, uh, I have to go. And he had his hands on the table. The president, the president went to get up like this, and pre Strom grabbed his arm and pulled him back down his seat. I never saw anybody do that to a president. And the president, true story, president looked 
very sternly at Strom. And Strom said with his hand still on his arm, he said, Mr. President, you all get to be my age, you understand. You got to compromise. <laughs> As the years passed, a true friendship developed, and more importantly, a partnership. It led to the already mentioned crime bill, strengthened laws fighting, uh, a long list of crimes, several judges being confirmed, and a and a a functioning judiciary committee, which some could argue about whether that's still true today. Strom Thurmond and Joe Biden began became such good friends. Biden was invited to speak at Thurman's 90th birthday party. You know, I got to say this to you. Fritz Hollings was the guy who got me elected. He was the chairman of the, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And Fritz, when I got elected to Senate 29, you never told me there'd be a day. And God willing, my grandfather Finnegan in his grave, looking down from heaven, is not listening now. Who would have thought in 1972, Fritz, that there, I'd be at a dinner where there was an invocation by a man who invoked the Lord's help to deal with the budget crisis, <laughs> introduced by Bob Dole, followed by Richard Nixon, <laughs> and praising Strom Thurmond. I am 60 and he's 100. There was always a 40-year chasm between us. And uh, I could say things to Strom and be irreverent with him. I could grab him by the arm and say, Strom, don't, which I wouldn't have been able to do had there been a 10-year difference. I was like the kid. And it's strange. I find it strange even talking about it. How this relationship that started in stark adversarial confrontation ended up being as close as it was Hedrick Smith, in his book The Power Game, wrote about Thurman's feelings for Joe Biden as well. Some people, Thurman told Smith, feel because of different philosophies, they have to be antagonistic. I take the position that you have to work with people, even if they have a different philosophy, if they are sincere. Biden and I get along. Biden is a nice fellow. He, he is a high-quality man. He's an excellent speaker. He's impressive. He's articulate. He's flexible. He's a good family man. And I say, the longer you stay here, the more you realize there is more than one side of the question. The more you realize that com compromise and courtesy are necessary. In 1988, Joe Biden was accused of plagiarism over a speech he made about being the first member of his family to go to college. It appeared to have been copied from British labor leader Neil Kinnock. It sunk his first campaign for president, and it occurred on the eve of the Robert Bork Supreme Court hearings. Biden was the chairman of the Judicial Committee. Strom Thurmond stood by Joe Biden through it, and he went with him to the White House to see President Reagan. Last time I sat here, Mr. President, you were 
back in uh, 82 or 83, we had gone over with Bill Cohen over to the Soviet Union, and you were asking whether or not arms control could get back underway. I'm looking forward to helping you on that one in the Foreign Relations Committee. I'd be very happy to have that. <laughs> I think I'm looking forward to helping you on this one, too. Well, bless your heart. Well, it's nice of you to come down. I hope it can be. This hearing can be expeditious because, you know, and I, I'm sure that we all feel the same way. Get after it, but. Joe is very articulate. He can help a lot. He's a good speaker, too. He's very convinced. I'm great at Kennedy speeches. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got some really good speech material I'd be happy to lend you. <laughs> oh, my. We had a good meeting in my office, Mr. Preston, and I'm convinced that uh, Senator Biden and Senator Thurman. Through that entire ordeal, Strom Thurmond never wavered for his friend, and Joe Biden survived that scandal largely because of Senator Strom Thurmond being in his corner. For me, those memories are deeply personal, and they will stay with me as long as I live. Strom Thurmond stood by me when others didn't, and it was against, when it was against his political interest to do so. I had been accused of something terrible, in my view, on the eve of the Bork nomination. I gathered the entire Senate, I was then chairman, the entire Judiciary Committee, and I said to Democrats and Republicans alike, I will stand aside as chairman so it will not affect this proceeding. And the first man to jump to his feet was your father, and he said no. And I said, well, let me explain. He said, you don't have to explain anything to me. You're my chairman. And with that, everyone on Syriatum stood up. It's Strom Thurmond. It's the first man on his feet did not seek a single explanation for what I had been accused of. And clearly, when partisanship was a winning option, he chose friendship. And I'll never forget him for it. I was honored to work with him, privileged to serve with him, and proud to call him my friend. His long life may well have been a gift of his beloved God, but the powerful and lasting impact he had on his beloved South Carolina and on his nation is Strom's legacy, his gift to all of us. And he will be missed. Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be in 
embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to our page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democrat. And I love John McCain. Remarkably, John Cho chose to remain in the Navy. He had an awful lot of other opportunities. But he had chosen a life of service. And to him, duty always dictated what to do, and he stayed. You can imagine my surprise when in 1977, I did meet Captain John McCain, Senate liaison officer of the Naval Legislative Office. I was a young, by far the youngest member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I got an opportunity to travel all over the world. And like John, I've met every major world leader without exception since 1976. And in the beginning, one of the most consequential days of my career, and we all look back on our careers and think of those things and moments that had an impact on how your career moved forward. I not only got to work with John McCain, I got to know him. I got to know an awful lot about him, and he got to know an awful lot about me. We traveled hundreds of thousands of miles together. We got to know each other's families. Sitting on my lawn in Wilmington having a picnic with his family when he was still in the Navy. My sons, Bo Biden, Army, Purple Heart, excuse me, a Bronze Star, other service, uh, other uh, medals he was awarded. Looked at John from the time he was a high school kid with nothing but absolute raw admiration. My son Hunter got to know John personally. They got to talk to him. They took the measure of the man and they got to learn from him. They really cared about you, John. I didn't know you know that. John and I would travel the world together. As I said, he jokes, he said he carried my bags. The son of a gun never carried my bags. He was supposed to carry my bags, damn it, but he never carried my bags. Joe Biden and John McCain. These two men are the perfect example of one of life lessons that I have learned in my own life. That if you'll take the time to get to know people, generally speaking, you will like them even if you don't agree with them often. These are two men, by circumstance, that got to know each other very well because they traveled together a lot, long before John McCain was a U.S. Senator. 
He was a young liaison officer. I was a young senator. Whether we were going to Germany or China, whenever I went, with notable exceptions, I asked John to come with me. And to many of those so-called CODELs, congressional delegations, back in the days when we liked each other and talked to each other, we used to travel together, Democrat and Republican, and our spouses. And many of those, Jill was along with me as well. She got to know and love John as well, and I think he loves her too. Traveling together with our wives was a tradition we kept up when John was later elected to the United States Senate himself. I never saw him just as a liaison officer. I pulled him in. I sought his advice. I'd be meeting with world leaders, and I'd ask John before I went in, what do you think, John? This is what I'm going to say. You think it makes sense, John? This is what I'm thinking. He not only became a friend, he became an advisor. And a little later on, I think maybe I served the same role for John when he was thinking about running. We talked for hours about the state of the world, about specific assignments, about our families, about what we wanted to do with our lives. I learned a hell of a lot about this man. And then uh, we talk about what we're going to do, how we were thinking about what we're going to do. And John would talk about maybe he was going to go back to Arizona, go to Arizona and get involved in politics. And to the chagrin of some of my Democratic friends, I strongly encouraged John to do it. Because I knew, I knew when he ran for the House, it didn't surprise me at all that he won. It didn't surprise me when he ran for the Senate and won. It just pleased me because we got to serve together. Often that is all really anyone need to do. Just take the time to get to know one another because it's hard to demonize someone you know and even harder to let it stand when others try to do it when it becomes someone you really like and are friends with. But it didn't surprise me when he became leader of his party. It didn't surprise me when he sought the nomination for president because I thought from the beginning he had that capacity. I thought then, in 2000, he should have been the nominee. From my perspective, it all pointed in that direction from the very beginning. John will remember, I called him after a couple of vicious attacks on him in South Carolina. And I offered to help him. I said, John, where do you want me? Pick the town, the city, the place, and I will testify to your character. And in classic John, he said, Joe, I think that hurt me more than it would help, but thanks. Remember that, John? And boy, was my team angry as hell with me because I made it known I was prepared to do it. But I'll tell you what did surprise me. I didn't expect, I didn't expect that, uh, and it caused me some consternation, although I was proud to be picked as vice president and serve with President Obama, I didn't expect that someday John and I would be on opposing tickets in 2008. But never once, never once did I ever say anything that wasn't positive about John during that campaign. I never made any secret about John being my friend, although I didn't talk about it too much, not as a joke, because it would have hurt him. 
Not a joke. John, do you remember? John and I used to, in debates in the 90s, we'd go over and sit with one another. Literally sit next to each other on either the Democratic or Republican side of the floor. And I knew something had changed, John, and so did you, coincidentally. And Bobby, and you, you won't remember this, neither you or my colleague from Delaware would know this. But we both got into our caucuses and we chastised by the leadership in both our caucuses. Why were we talking with another and sit with one another, showing such friendship in the middle of debates? This was after the Gingrich Revolution in the 90s. They didn't want us sitting together. That's when things began to change, not between John and me, but things began to change. My point is, you can disagree in life and still find common ground. Joe Biden and John McCain were friends who ended up in 2008 running basically against one another for the biggest two jobs in the world, President and Vice President of the United States. And yet they remained friends and worked for what they believed in. And after all, we are all Americans first and foremost. John and I have been with one another and together, and we've been against one another. Now, as you've all observed, neither one of us have a temper. Neither one of us ever lose our cool. But boy, <laughs> oh boy. Uh, but as I've said, and John knows, even after our toughest fights, John saying to me, Call me and say, you know, Biden should be taken off the ticket. <laughs> and then he called me to say, I didn't really mean that. I don't know what the hell made me say that. I've said this before because John and I have been given several awards together lately about bipartisanship. And we don't understand why you should get an award for bipartisanship, by the way. But I said this publicly before. I know if I call John in the middle of the night, even after the most bitter debate we could have, and said, John, I'm at 7th and Vine in St. Louis. I can't explain why, but I need you to come now for me. He'd get on the plane and he'd go. I guarantee you. And so would I for him. We've always been willing, when we thought the other guy was right, to cross the aisle and lock arms. It's good for the country. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Joe, my old dear friend. Thank you, Joe, my old dear friend, for those mostly undeserved kind words. Vice President Biden and I have known each other for a lot of years now, more than 40 if you're counting. We knew each other back when we were young and handsome and smarter than everyone else, but were too modest to say so. Joe was already a senator, and I was the Navy's liaison officer to the Senate. My duties included, as he mentioned earlier, escorting Senate delegations on overseas trips, and in that capacity, I supervised the de delegation's luggage, which could require now and again, when no one of lower rank was available for the job, that I carry someone else's bag. Once or twice, that turned out to be the young senator from Delaware. I've resented it ever since. <laughs> Joe has heard me joke about that before. I hope he has heard, too, 
my profession of gratitude for his friendship and love these many years. It's meant a lot to me. We, <coughs> we served in the Senate together for over 20 years during some eventful times as we passed from young men to the fossils who appear before you this evening. <laughs> we didn't always agree on the issues. We often argued, sometimes passionately, but we believed in each other's patriotism and the sincerity of each other's convictions. We believed in the institution we were privileged to serve in. We believed in our mutual responsibility to help make the place work and to cooperate in finding solutions to our country's problems. We believed in our country and in our country's indispensability to international peace and stability and to the progress of humanity. And through it all, whether we argued or agreed, Joe was good company. You all know he is good company. <laughs> so thank you, old friend, for your company and your service to America. The point John McCain made while talking to Joe Biden, we, the United States of America, are the leaders of the world. Without us, who stands as the beacon of hope and freedom to the rest of the world? We cannot afford to let division take us down. We must learn to stop questioning the motives of our adversaries, if for no other reason than to want to see our country work, to see our institutions function, and to see our national problems resolved for the good of our fellow man. This is not complicated, folks. It's called basic civility, respect, and trust. We will not thrive in a world where our leadership and ideals are absent. We wouldn't deserve to. I'm the luckiest guy on earth. I have served America's cause, the cause of our security and the security of our friends, the cause of freedom and equal justice all my adult life. I haven't always served it well. I haven't even always appreciated what I was serving. But among the few compensations of old age is the acuity of hindsight. I see now that I was part of something important that drew me along in its wake even when I was diverted by other interests. I was, knowingly or not, along for the ride as America made the future better than the past. And I've enjoyed it, every single day of it, the good ones and the not so good ones. I've been inspired by the service of better patriots than me. I've seen Americans make sacrifices for our country and our causes and for people who were strangers to them, but for our common humanity. Sacrifices that were much harder than the service ever asked of me. And I've seen the good they've done, the lives they've freed from tyranny and injustice, the hope they encouraged, the dreams they've made achievable. May God bless them. May God bless America and give us the strength and wisdom, the generosity and compassion to do our duty for this wondrous land and for the world that counts on us. With all its suffering and danger, the world still looks to the example and leadership of America to become another better place. What greater cause could anyone ever serve? Thank you again for this honor. I'll treasure it.
Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience. Don't take it personally, and don't fight the same old battles over and over again, plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to my page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters, rogue police could break down citizens' doors and midnight raids, and school children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be censured at the whim of government. I and Mr. President, I have been disturbed over the methods used by some of Judge Balk's opponents. Adverse publicity about the nominee has been unsurpassed. Advertising on radio, television, and in the press has distorted true character and the exceptional qualities of Judge Ball. There were those, however, who felt compelled to counter this lobbying campaign against Judge Ball. Gerald Ford, former President of the United States, introduced Judge Ball and urged favorable action by the committee and confirmation by the full Senate. During the hearings, we also heard testimony from former Chief Justice Warren Berger, who stated, and I quote, I was so concerned about the disinformation in some of these full-page ads that I felt as a member of the bar, as a citizen, I had an obligation really to say what I believe. There never was a nominee that I thought had better qualifications. If Judge Bulk is not in the mainstream, neither am I and neither have I been, end quote. Chief Justice Baker also stated, it would astonish me to think that he is an extremist any more than I am an extremist. Now, Mr. President, as a former Chief Justice of the United States talking, he says if Judge Bulk's an extremist, he's an extremist. Well, everybody knows that Chief Justice Baker was no extremist. Why would he make that statement? He has no personal interest in this matter. He said it for the good of the nation. He said it because it's the truth. He said it because he thought he ought to help set the record straight. Mr. President, in this same vein, former Attorney General William Frank Smith, in commenting about some adverse advertising, said, and I quote, The thing that is distressing to me is that it really is not just propaganda. Propaganda you can understand. That is part of the way we do things. But in this case, I have never seen such misrepresentation, such distortion, and such outright lying. I mean, there are people in very important positions in the government 
who are lying to the American public. Now, Mr. President, who said that? Former Tenure General William Frank Smith. Man who no one has ever questioned his integrity or his honesty or his truthfulness. And that was his statement. The American Bar Association Standing Committee on the Federal Judiciary rated Judge Bob exceptionally well qualified when he was nominated to the Second Court. Mr. President, this is the American Bar Association's highest rating. And that's the big organization of lawyers in the whole nation. American Bar Association. And that committee studied him. They talked to Supreme Court Justice. They talked to other judges. They talked to law professors. They talked to law deans. They talked to practicing attorneys. They talked to every segment of justice and the bar. And they gave him the highest rating that they could give anyone. Isn't that worth something? The case of the appointment to the United States Supreme Court of Robert Bork did more damage to our ability to work together than just about any single event I can remember from many, many years ago. Bork came under fire for his opinions on freedom of speech, privacy protection, women's rights, and his opinions on civil rights. But one U.S. Senator, Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts, was determined to derail that nomination. But Robert Bork answered in depth the, the questions of the Senate on every subject they wanted to ask. From this hearing on, no nominee has ever been as specific with his answers because of how this hearing went. And here are just a couple of examples of what happened. No civilized person wants to live in a society without a lot of privacy in it. And the framers, in fact, of the Constitution protected privacy in a variety of ways. The First Amendment protects free exercise of religion. The free speech provision of the First Amendment has been held to protect the privacy of membership lists and a person's associations in order to make the free speech right effective. The uh, Fourth Amendment protects the individual's home and office from unreasonable searches and seizures and usually requires a warrant. The Fifth Amendment has a right against self-incrimination. There's much more. There's a lot of privacy in the Constitution. Uh, Griswold, in which we were talking about a Connecticut statute which was unenforced against any individual except a birth control clinic. Griswold involved the Connecticut statute which banned the use of contraceptives. There was no, and, and Justice Douglas entered, uh, ended that opinion with a rather uh, eloquent statement of how awful it would be to have the police pounding into the marital bedroom. And, and it would be awful, and it would never happen because there is a Fourth Amendment. And the police, nobody ever tried to enforce that statute, but the police simply could not get into the bedroom without a warrant. And what magistrate's going to give the police a warrant to go into search for signs of use of contraceptives? I mean, it's a wholly, it's a wholly bizarre and uh, imaginary case. Now, let me say this. That yield at that point, just to, for clarification. Yes, if they had evidence that a crime was being committed. How are they going to get evidence that a, a couple are using contraceptives? Wiretapping. Wiretap. It's a legal wiretap. You mean to say that a magistrate is going to authorize a wiretap to find out if a couple is using contraceptives? They could. Couldn't no, they the law? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Let, now, I understand that, but under the law, Judge, could they not have? It was a crime, correct? It was a, it was a crime in 
on the statute books, which was never prosecuted. Well, never. Well, the fact that it wasn't prosecuted did not well, mean me, it wasn't a crime, does it? I have more to say about that, whether it was a crime or not. Uh, let's assume they were drug dealers. They were also accused of, there, uh, there was evidence that they, uh, um, that they're involved in some other illegal activity, and there was a wiretap. And they hear discussion of contraceptives? Yeah. There's, nobody is going to get a warrant for that, and nobody, no prosecution is going to be upheld for that. And I'll, I'd like to go on to that point, because okay. Thank you, sir. I think the law was an utterly silly law. Um, but my objection is simply to the undefined nature of what the court did there, and I've tried to illustrate that for you by asking you whether you would vote for a statute that said nothing more than that everybody has a right of privacy, and the court shall enforce it. There was no legal underpinning for it. Senator, uh, I, uh, I think there was. And let me say two things about it. One is that I have recently been told, I, I uh, have never read the briefs in the Supreme Court, but I know some folks, some folks who have in Brown. And there is, it begins to look as if there is historical argument that the framers of the 14th Amendment did not like segregation and may have intended to do away with it, but that as the, when the, and the, and the black codes and the segregation didn't begin to come into the South until the, uh, I think, until the troops left, after, left the South, the Northern troops left the South, and then later the Supreme Court changed. Plessy against Ferguson, after all, is an 1896 case, which is fairly long after the 14th Amendment. Uh, Plessy against Ferguson being the case that said separate but equal is all right. Uh, but passing that, passing that historical evidence, which I think casts some doubt on the flat assumption that the 14th Amendment really meant separate but equal, let me say this. They wrote a clause that doesn't say anything about separation. They wrote a clause that says equal protection of the laws. I think it may well be true, as you suggest, Senator, that they had an assumption, which is not, which they did not enact, but they had an assumption that equality could be achieved with separation. Over the years, it became clear that that assumption would not be borne out in reality, ever. Separation would never produce equality. I think when the background assumption proved false, it was entirely proper for the court to say, well, we, we will carry out the rule they wrote and if, if, if they would have been a little surprised that, we, that uh, it worked out this way, that's too bad. That's the rule they wrote, and they assumed something that is not true. And in that way, I don't think any damage is done. You can even look at it more severely. You could say, suppose they had written a clause that said, we want equality, and that can be achieved by separation, and we want that too. By 1954, it was perfectly apparent that you could not have both equality and separation. Now, the court has to violate one aspect or the other of that clause, as I have framed it hypothetically. Uh, it seems to me that the way the actual amendment was written, it was natural to choose the equality segment. And the court did so. I think it was proper constitutional law. And I think we're all better off for it. Perfectly reasonable, legally researched, and well thought out answers. 
But the situation that developed in stopping this nomination created hard feelings within the Republican Party that have never healed. Increasingly, judicial appointments to the Supreme Court have become ideological and the most vicious displays of partisanship that you will see. Which makes sense, considering that this fight was always really about not Robert Bork's philosophy of law, in my opinion, but his role in the biggest scandal in American history, the Saturday Night Massacre of Watergate, when Robert Bork fired Archibald Cox. Was there ever any doubt in your mind that the people in this, of this country expected the special prosecutor to go forward and obtain the facts with respect to the matter of Watergate there was never any doubt, doubt in, my in your mind that that no, was... No, there was never any doubt in my mind that the people of the country wanted that prosecution, the investigations to go forward and prosecutions to result if justified. And there was never any doubt in my mind that that's exactly what I wanted. And in fact, I did my utmost to keep that special prosecution force intact and going forward. And Senator, I think, we can get into the details later, but I think, it's important, and I think this is really what the, the, the matter is about. This is the final official report of the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. Not written by me, written by the men and, and women in the Special Prosecution Force. And they say on page 11, the Saturday Night Massacre did not halt, halt the work of the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. And the prosecutors resumed their grand jury sessions as scheduled the following Tuesday. Bork placed Assistant Attorney General Henry Peterson, head of the criminal division, in charge of the investigations WSPF had been conducting. And here's a crucial sentence. Both men assured the staff that its work would continue with the cooperation of the Justice Department and without interference from the White House. Did you, you and that's exactly what happened. You consistently took the position, did you, that the tape should be made available, that the president should cooperate, uh, and that the special prosecutor's responsibility should go on? I took the position that the, the, the special prosecutor's people, all of whom remained in place and in their own building, and uh, should go on. I never took the position that the president had to hand over evidence if he thought he had a legal right not to. I took the position that the special prosecution force had a right to go to court to compel him to hand over evidence, uh, and indeed they did. Bork shared some details of how he came to the decision to fire Prosecutor Cox as the White House wanted. Judge Bork, you've said a number of times that you went ahead and conducted yourself as you did because you were worried that there might be a number of resignations. <coughs> the American government, the American people were totally distraught at this moment. And are you... You've, you've sort of suggested that because some lawyers might quit, plenty of lawyers around, I'm a lawyer, plenty of lawyers around, that because some lawyers might quit, even though they had had some experience in this area, that because of that, you went forward and did this act, which the court declared to, determined to be an illegal act. Isn't that pretty hard for the American people to accept? Uh, if, if I thought it was just a question of replacing one lawyer with another, I, it would be pretty hard to accept. That's not what was taking place, however. Senator, let me talk about that. Uh, I think it's maybe it's time now to tell the story. If we have, do we have time to tell the story? No. All right. I was sitting in my office Saturday afternoon writing a letter, I think, to a third grade class about the Bill of Rights. 
But, and I went down at the time scheduled for Mr. Cox's press conference into the uh, office of Jack Hushin, who was our press officer then. And we watched it on television. The minute it was over, Mr. Richardson's secretary came in the door and said, the attorney general wants to see you. And we went in then into his office, and Mr. Ruckel's house was there, and a few of Mr. Richardson's aides. And we talked about this crisis that was developing. And finally, Mr. Richardson had said something like, I think they're going to order me to fire him, or, or, or they have ordered me, or I think they're going to order me. He said, I can't fire Cox. Can you, Bill? And Bill said, no. And that's the first time I realized I was going to be asked a question. And he said, can you do it, Bob? The, the thought had never occurred to me before. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. So I said, let me think. And they went on talking, and I got up and walked around Elliot's office several times. And I finally said, I can, yes, I can do it, but I will resign immediately afterwards. And they said, why would you resign? And I replied, because I don't want to be regarded as an apparatchik, an organization man who does whatever the organization wants. Uh, they said, if you do do it, both of them said, if you do do it, don't resign. The department needs the continuity and the stability. And that's when the, the thought about the necessity of holding the department together first came into my mind, and, and uh, Elliot and Bill were both quite strong on the point that if you do do it, don't leave, because the department needs this continuity. Why? And I was the one person who was a department-wide officer who was left uh, and who could make a good attempt at both preserving the Department of Justice and preserving the Watergate Special Prosecution Force, which was obviously the thing that had to be done in both cases. Well, now, you have heard from our spirited and tenacious colleague from Ohio. Well, we got halfway through the He'll be back. massacre. We'll get to the other half later, I suppose, Senator. He'll be back. He'll be back. And, uh, and why not? I mean, we've only been talking about it for 14 years. That's true. 14 years. This is a curious place. If you go out in the land and say, what were you doing on the night of the Saturday night massacre, a guy will say, what are you talking about? But in this town, well, you say, what were you doing on the night of the Saturday night massacre? They say, I was just finishing shaving. I was going out to dinner. I can't, I'll never forget it in my whole life. I went limp. My wife and I talked and huddled together and had a drink and just shuddered in shock. <laughs> that really ain't the way it is out in the world about the Saturday night As it became obvious that the Bork nomination was going to go south, a new senator rose to the Senate floor to speak, a senator from Kentucky, and he spoke about what was going to happen concerning judicial appointments ever since, and he's been right on the money. His name was Mitch McConnell. It was pretty clear that a majority of the Senate had settled on the following kinds of criteria as relevant to our inquiry in advising and consenting to nominees to the Supreme Court. And I listed at that time five criteria that are obviously appropriate, that no one would argue with. First, we want to make sure the nominee is absolutely competent. It is, after all, the Supreme Court of the United States we're talking about here, not the uh, police court in Hoboken, New Jersey. Clearly, we would want somebody who had attained great achievement, distinguished achievement, 
in his or her life. Judicial temperament, clearly an important, important part of weighing the credentials of any nominee to the Supreme Court, obviously something the Senate ought to look at. Conduct on the bench, clearly we want somebody who is who's handled himself on the bench properly. And finally, I think personal integrity at this level of our judicial system, the very top, is obviously something we should be looking for. A thoughtful senator should realize that any benefits of barring an ideological opponent from the court are not likely to outweigh the damage done to the court's institutional standing. Friedman goes on. Ideological opposition to a nominee from one end of the political spectrum is likely to help generate similar opposition to later nominations from the opposite end. In the long run, the result of such opposition will probably be to politicize the selection process, not to shift the court either to the left or to the right. Friedman goes on. And if senators were regularly to vote against nominees of moderate but opposing views, the selection process would become almost unimaginably, unimaginably politicized, and the appointment power would in large part be shifted from the president to the Senate. That those standards uttered by a rather idealistic 28-year-old uh, lawyer are not likely to be honored in this body. It seems to me the only time that we're inclined to restrain ourselves and to limit the inquiry to those kinds of standards are when we get a non-controversial nominee. The president, whoever he is, sends up a nomination that's not very controversial, and we can stand up and preach to each other about how the advice and consent role means those five standards. But if the president sends up a controversial nomination, and that's what this one has certainly turned out to be, it seems to me that it's not likely that we're going to restrain ourselves the opportunity to go for the political raw meat is just too great. And so while I wish it were the way I said it ought to be in 1970, it isn't. And it seems to me we might as well accept and adopt what the new standard really is. I do this with no particular bitterness, I might add even though it in a sense makes my article that I was proud of 18 years ago dated and some would argue irrelevant. I nevertheless am prepared today to say I accept the new standard. It's just asking too much of us to ignore the political implications of a nomination to the Supreme Court. We're going to do it. We're going to do it when we want to. And when we want to is going to be when the president, whoever he may be, sends up somebody we don't like. And there are going to be darn few people in the United States Senate who can limit their inquiry on that occasion 
to things like competence, achievement, judicial temperament, conduct, and integrity. In fact, no matter what we call it, what we're going to be doing is trying to create a reason to oppose a nominee that we object to on philosophical grounds. And so it seems that where we are is that advice and consent in 1987 as a result of the defeat of Judge Robert Bork means this. It means for a majority of the United States Senate that we're going to make this decision on any basis we darn well please. And if we object as a matter of philosophical persuasion that the president's trying to move the court to the right or to the left, we'll just stand up and say that and vote accordingly. And I must say, I reached this conclusion in some respects with a sense of relief. Because if my party, for example, were not to win the presidency next year, I expect that a, a nominated Supreme Court might be of a persuasion that I would not prefer. And were I to uh, continue to apply the standards that I penned in the Kentucky Law Journal in 1970, I would make a limited inquiry into that nominee based upon his competence, achievement, temperament, conduct, and integrity. But it seems to this senator if, that if nobody else is going to apply that kind of standard, then he shouldn't either. And so, as I said, with no particular bitterness, I think that we should apply the new rule. And the new rule is that we will, in this body, consider all aspects of every nominee, henceforth. And as far as my one vote is concerned, I shall henceforth consider the judicial philosophy of the nominee as relevant to my inquiry in determining how I cast my vote. And from Robert Bork forward, the senator from Kentucky will consider the new standard established by the United States Senate in this confirmation proceeding and apply it prospectively. And the senator from Kentucky will do that with some relief, as I indicated earlier. Mitch McConnell has risen to the office of Republican Senate leader and Senate majority leader in the years since. And he's proven to be one of the most effective and longest serving Republican leaders in American history. His passion has been getting judges on the federal court, and it has shown, especially in the last few years. He has never forgotten the way that Robert Bort was treated, the way Senator Kennedy and several other groups worked to destroy Judge Bork's, not only his nomination, but Judge Bork himself. But one Democratic senator who was opposed to Judge Bork made his case based on his opposition to Bork's overall philosophy, but without implying that Bork was racism or sexism or any of these other character flaws. And that senator was Joe Biden of Delaware. But he may not treat the Senate as a body whose substantive views 
are an illegitimate part of the confirming process. He may not ignore the reality that a majority of senators were elected to expound views that may sometimes differ greatly from his own. And that is the essential thing for all senators to remember as we begin this debate. Citizens of each state elected their senators to bring thought, discretion, and judgment to bear on the great issues of this country in this day and on who should sit on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And let's keep in view the wise reminder of Oliver Wendell Holmes, the one that he gave to the Supreme Court over 80 years ago. He said that our Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing views. So too, the Senate was conceived to represent a nation of diverse and fundamentally different opinions. And unless we respect the good faith and sincerity and the integrity of our colleagues' judgment, the harmony of this body and the effective representation we owe the people, I believe, are in grave peril, not the independence of the judiciary. And by all means, let's air our differences and debate the merits of this nomination fully. But let's debate without rancor so we can return thereafter to the further business of this nation, not as enemies but as colleagues, so that we can join in deciding and conferring and confirming who the next nominee will be, not will be, but who the next vacancy, who will fill the next vacancy in the Supreme Court. There is a great deal more to say, Mr. Chairman, and I am prepared, like others on this floor, to speak to all of the issues raised today in as much detail as people would like. But I sincerely hope, I sincerely hope, we do not deny our colleagues or the nation the benefit of a great debate on the principles involved in this nomination and whether or not the views which Judge Bork has expounded for many years and reaffirmed before our committee are the views that should be represented on the court. Reasonable women and men can differ, and there are some very bright, respected, honorable members of this body and members and people outside this body who strongly believe that Judge Bork's judicial philosophy should be represented on the court. And there's others of us who believe it should not be. We should debate that issue. The nation will be better for it, the court will be better for it, and this body will be better for it. I yield the floor. Today, circumstances have maneuvered these two men to the top of the American government. Joe Biden to the presidency of the United States, and Mitch McConnell, the highest-ranking Republican in the country. So what does that mean for our country? It may be better than you actually think. Achieve his goal of finishing what Lincoln began. He will need the help of another man from Illinois. We think now we've got a good deal. Watch LBJ and Everett Dirksen horse trade and maneuver through a maze of obstacles to two of the most important pieces of legislation 
in all of American history. You're a hard bargain, man. No, I'm not, but you just take care of me. I'll look at this and see what I'm doing and call you right back. All right. Next time on Bridging the Political Gap. Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Mitch McConnell. I was told, I don't know whether it's true, that this was one of the larger gatherings uh, at the center here. I don't know if that's true, but I know if it is true, the reason why. You want to see whether or not a Republican and Democrat really like one another. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you we do. Many of you uh, will have the opportunity to literally shape. Few generations ever have the opportunity just to bend history just a little bit. Few ever have that opportunity. This generation, and we do, there is a fundamentally new Congress headed by Republicans and a new breed of Republicans. I mean that not as a, in any negative sense, a new breed of Republicans, like every party changes and moves. And a Senate, which is almost evenly divided now, whereas we at one point had 60 votes. They say nothing can be done. I don't accept that. I don't accept that because I accept as a basic premise that all the men and women elected to the Congress, from liberals to conservatives, Tea Party to blue dogs, mainstream Republicans to mainstream Democrats, however you want to characterize it, they all ran for office because they love their country. These two men are actually personal friends, and Mitch McConnell openly spoke about their friendship on the Senate floor in 2016. Now, the presiding officer would be the first to tell you that he's been blessed in many ways. He's also been tested, knocked down, pushed to the edge of what anyone could be expected to bear. But from the grip of unknowable despair, he came a new man, a better man, stronger and more compassionate grateful for every moment, appreciative of what really matters. Here in the Senate, he heeded the advice of Mike Mansfield. Here's what Senator Mansfield had to say. Your job here is to find the good things in your colleagues. And Joe, never attack another man's motive because you don't know his motive. Look for the good. Don't attack motives. It's the basis of a simple philosophy and a very powerful one. Vice President Biden says his views, he views his competitors as competitors, not enemies. And he's been able to cultivate many unlikely friendships across the aisle with Jesse Helms, with Strom Thurmond, with me. Over the years, we've worked together on issues of mutual interest, like Burma, 
And regarding the vote we just took a few moments ago, 21st Century Cures and the Cancer Moonshot. We've also negotiated in good faith when the country needed bipartisan leadership. We got results that would not have been possible without a negotiating partner like Joe Biden. Obviously, I don't always agree with him, but I do trust him implicitly. He doesn't break his word. He doesn't waste time telling me why I'm wrong. He gets down to brass tacks and he keeps in sight the stakes. There's a reason get Joe on the phone is shorthand for time to get serious in my office. The vice president is a likable guy too. He's got a well-developed sense of humor. He doesn't take himself too seriously either. Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden like each other. And most importantly, they have built up a trust in one another. And what a road he has traveled. From Newcastle to the Naval Observatory, from Scranton to the Senate. His journey in this body began by the side of those who loved him. Hand on the Bible, heart in a knot, swearing the same oath he now administers to others. It's a journey that ends now by the side of those who care about him still. Those like his wife, Jill, who understand the full life he's lived. Here's a man who's known great joy, who's been read his last rites, and who's never lost himself along the way. Champ, his father used to say, the measure of a man is not how often he is knocked down, but how quickly he gets up. That's Joe Biden right there. Unbowed, unbroken, and unable to stop talking. It's my privilege to convey the Senate's warm wishes to the Vice President on this Delaware day as the next steps of his long journey come into view. There are many here who feel this way in both parties. I'm reminded of something the presiding officer said when he addressed the University of Louisville several years ago. It was one of the McConnell Center's most popular lectures ever. And as I sat beside him, he offered his theory as to why that might be. I think you're all here today. Remember, these are young, young people, students. So I think you're all here today because you want to see whether or not a Republican and a Democrat really like each other. Well, he continued, flashing a smile. I'm here to tell you, we do. It was true then, and it's true today. So I hope the presiding officer won't mind if I conclude with some words directed to the chair. Mr. President, you've been a real friend. You've been a trusted partner. And it's been an honor to serve with you. We're all going to miss you. Godspeed. When Ronald Reagan died in June of 2004, ABC News had historian Richard Reeves on during the funeral broadcast. He said something profound that has stuck with me all these years. Old men are different than young men. 
Ambition fades and thoughts of history fill its place. Another great friendship comes to mind, that of President Ronald Reagan and House Speaker Tip O'Neill. Chris Matthews, the uh, former MSNBC host of Hardball, wrote of their relationship and a major factor in its success. Now, Chris Matthews worked for uh, Tip O'Neill back in the 80s. They had one very big thing in common, not just their Irishness, but their age. Both were growing not just older, but old, and they knew it. If each were to leave their mark, then they would have to do it somehow with the other. In other words, together. Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell are in a similar situation. They are both 78 and 79 years old. Most likely neither will ever face the voters again. This is their chance to, to come up and leave a real legacy to the nation. Together these two friends could really move us away from this era of demonization and extremism. Both men's resumes show that they know how and have the ability to do it, to do it if they'll make a conscious decision to do it and have the determination to stay on track. I hope and I believe that they will. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. So long for now. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.